The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Well, before I explain and exult in Psalm 2, I'd like to share a family update and ask you all to pray for us. So I get to serve as a research professor of systematic theology and New Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary. And our president, Dr. Joe Rigney, and his cabinet have generously granted me a research sabbatical for the first half of 2022. When you heard that word sabbatical, you thought that meant vacation, didn't you? That's not what it means. It, uh, it's a working sabbatical, and I plan to be working full-time on research and writing, and I just won't have my usual load of teaching and administrative responsibilities. On my last research sabbatical, our family spent six months in Cambridge, England, on the road to commentary on 1 Corinthians. On this research sabbatical, we don't plan to be away for six months. We plan to be away for about three months. We're planning to leave this week for South Carolina. Greenville is where my parents and Jenny's parents and a bunch of other family members live. So also it's nice the temperature's a little better. <laughs> so we're, we're looking forward to leaving this week. And uh, we plan to return the, in, in late April. I plan to come back on February 6th for uh, Dr. Rigney's inauguration at the downtown campus that evening. I don't want to miss that. Now, my primary research goal on this sabbatical is to write a book on predestination, so election, reprobation, uh, and it's for Crossway, a, a series they have on systematic theology. And I've already kind of mapped out the basic contours of the book, but I've got a mountain of work to do, and uh, I'm just hoping this will be fruitful, so I'm asking to pray for this. Um, I'm hoping to share some fruits of this labor with you in June and July. I'm scheduled to preach a four-part sermon series on predestination then. So I'll try to share the fruit of my labor with you a little bit there. Uh, I'll next be with you, God willing, on May 1st uh, when I preach on Daniel 9. We haven't even started the series yet, but uh, that's, that's the plan. So I plan to give you an update on May 1st. In the meantime, I'm just asking you, would you please pray? that I would be faithful and fruitful during this time, and especially pray for my wife Jenny and our four daughters that this time away would be fruitful for them. We'd be grateful for your prayers. Now let's uh, turn our attention to Psalm 2, and before we focus on it, let's pray one more time briefly and then look at the text. Lord, would you please enlighten our minds and inflame our hearts as we consider this second psalm. Help us be wise by submitting to you and to your enthroned Son. Amen. Well, I recently read, reread The Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And this time I listened to Andy Serkis brilliantly perform it in narration. He's the guy who acts Gollum in the blockbuster movies. So good. My, my four daughters are just finishing up listening to the final book of the trilogy right now. Uh, really, really well done. I don't know how many times I've read these books, lost count, and every time I read them now, I make new connections I hadn't made before. I don't know if you've read Tolkien. There's a zillion details to forget. So I, 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 I'm always remembering things. I, yeah, anyway, so there's, there's a lot there. I, I prefer C.S. Lewis's more simple style. All right, focus. So when I read Tolkien's stories about Middle Earth, uh, the very first time I did that, I had to focus on the storyline. So I, 
the movies hadn't, hadn't been out yet, so they came out when I was in college. So I, I think I first read it in seventh grade. And I'm just thinking, who are the characters? What's happening? What do I think might happen? I'm just trying to follow the story. It's my first time through. I don't know where it's going. I don't know how it ends. Now, when I read it for the second and fourth and seventh time, I don't read it like I read it the first time. I can never again read it like I read it the first time. It's going to be different every time because I already know the characters. I know the storyline. I know where it's going. Do you think that ruins it for the subsequent readings? The answer is absolutely not. I think it makes it better. And you see connections that you couldn't have seen the first time. The first time you're, you're reading through the books, when you read about an incident, you have no idea how to connect that to something in the future because you haven't read that yet, right? But in your subsequent readings, you will read part of the story and you'll know how it fits with later in the story and you'll see connections that you could not have seen before. You understanding my point? All right. Do you see how this might be relevant for, say, a psalm written by King David? So what we're going to do as we look at Psalm 2 is think of it like this. What would it be like to read this psalm for the first time not knowing what comes next in the Bible? So read it in its historical, cultural context. What did King David intend when he wrote this? And how how did that land on God's people at the time? So we're going to do that first. Take Take one pass through it with that question in mind. And then we're going to come back a second time and ask, what's the whole Bible context for Psalm 2? How do we read Psalm 2 with Christian eyes? And we'll have our ears up for how does the New Testament cite Psalm 2? How does it use Psalm 2? So I'll talk more about this, this uh, how does the Old Testament and the New work in, in, later in the sermon. But that's our, our basic plan is to take two passes through this psalm, which Acts 4 says is written by King David. Let's start first really quickly by talking about the structure of the psalm. When you look at the psalm in your Bible, you might see white space around some sections. We call those stanzas. So there are four stanzas, and it's one to three, four to six, seven to nine, ten to twelve are the four stanzas. So I'm going to repeatedly refer to stanza one, stanza two. That's what I'm talking about. In all four of the stanzas, King David is a speaker, but in stanza one, he also quotes rebellious nations. In stanza two, he quotes the Lord. And in stanza three, he quotes the Lord. And in stanza four, it's, it's all David. So let's start by reading stanza one. And then this is our first pass through the historical cultural context. Why do the nations rage? Why do they conspire? Why do they rebel? And why do the peoples plot in vain? Why do they devise plots that will fail? The kings of the earths set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. Now that term, set themselves, it means they're preparing for battle. They set themselves for battle. Why do, so the kings are doing this, they're taking counsel together and they're taking counsel against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, and notice the quotation marks, this is what the the rebels are saying, let us burst their bonds apart. That word there is referring to the Lord and his anointed. Let us burst their bonds apart. 
and cast away their cords, their shackles from us. Here's the main idea of this stanza. Vassal Gentile nations futilely rebel against the Lord and His anointed King. Vassal Gentile nations futilely rebel against the Lord and His anointed King. The historical cultural context for this psalm is King David ruling the nation of Israel at a time when the surrounding Gentile nations were vassals. They are vassal nations who are subject to Israel, and those nations were part of Israel's empire. Verse 1 asks a rhetorical question. Here's the idea if you state it as a proposition. It's futile for pagan nations to rage against the Lord. It's futile for the pagans to plan how to rebel against the Lord. Why do they even bother plotting against the Lord? It's not going to work. And that word plot, why do the peoples plot in vain? That translates the same Hebrew word that we saw last week in Psalm 1. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Meditate, plot, translates the same word. That word just means to be consumingly preoccupied with something. We're supposed to be consumingly preoccupied with God's words, but these rebels are consumingly preoccupied with something else. They're preoccupied with rebelling against the Lord. Verses 2 and 3 depict pagan rulers planning to rebel against the Lord and against the Lord's anointed one, and such planning is in vain. That term in end of verse 2 that says his anointed, that's a common way that the Old Testament refers to the king, Israel's king. The prophet Samuel anointed Israel's first two kings with oil. He anointed Saul in 1 Samuel 10 and David in 1 Samuel 16. So his anointed refers to the Davidic king, the king of Israel. So the main idea of stanza one, vassal Gentile nations futilely rebel against the Lord and his anointed king. Now let's read the second stanza. He who sits, the idea is he sits enthroned. He who sits enthroned in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. He scoffs at them. He ridicules them. He taunts them. Then he will speak to them. He will rebuke them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. Here's the main idea of stanza two. The Lord taunts and terrifies those who rebel against him and the king he has installed. The Lord taunts and terrifies those who rebel against him and the king he has installed. So this stanza is describing how the Lord responds to these rebellious rulers. First, he laughs. He holds him in derision. This isn't laughing the way that you laugh at a funny joke. This is taunting. The human rulers are rebelling against God Almighty, and God Almighty mocks them. These people who think they can overthrow God, God taunts them. It's derisive laughter. It sounds like two other psalms, Psalms 37 and 59. The Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. You, O Lord, laugh at them. You hold all the nations in derision. And then verse 5, the Lord responds in his wrath and 
in his fury. He terrifies them. There are severe consequences for rebelling against the Lord. And in verse 6, God himself says that he has installed, he has set, he's installed the Davidic king on Zion. Zion refers to Jerusalem. That's the capital of God's kingdom on earth. The Davidic king whom God has installed represents God Almighty. So human rulers who rebel against the Davidic king are rebelling against God Almighty. So the main idea of stanza two is that the Lord taunts and terrifies those who rebel against him and the king he has installed. Let's read stanza three. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now, if you're reading the NIV, the CSB, the NET, the NLT, it doesn't say today I have begotten you. It says today I have become your father. Same thing, same idea. Today I have begotten you. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth or the ends of the land your possession. You shall break them with a rod or a scepter of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel, like pottery, like clay pots. Here's the main idea of stanza three. The Lord became the king's father at his coronation and will give the king victory over rebels. The Lord became the king's father at his coronation and will give the king victory over rebels. In this stanza, King David, the anointed one, is repeating what the Lord said to him at his coronation, at the time he became king. He was installed as king. And this stanza, it's a really important connection here, connects to what God promised David in 2 Samuel 7. Do you know what we call that promise? The Davidic covenant. This means a promise that God made to David and to his, his line the Davidic kings. So here's what 2 Samuel 7 says. I, this is God talking to David, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. That's 2 Samuel 7, 14 and 16. So you look at verse 7 here and you see the words, you are my son, today I have begotten you. That's using the language from 2 Samuel 7.14. Now, sometimes in the Old Testament, God refers to all of his people as his son. You see that in Exodus 4 and Psalm 80 and Hosea 11. King David is God's son because he represents and embodies God's people. See that in Psalm 89. So this begetting language... Today I have begotten you. It's a metaphor. This divine adoption took place for the Davidic king when he became the king at his coronation. So when an Israelite became Israel's king, he became God's son in line with 2 Samuel 7.14. Now let's look at verses 8 and 9. The Lord here is promising to King David that he will own... I'll make the nations your heritage and your possession. He will own and smash, break, dash, rebellious nations. 
the rebellious nations have as much chance at defeating the Lord as fragile pottery does at, at defeating an iron rod. So the main idea of this stanza is that the Lord became the king's father at his coronation and will give the king victory over rebels. Now let's read stanza four. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, submit to correction, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear, with reverence, with reverential awe, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, pay homage to the Son, submit to the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. It can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Here's the main idea of stanza four. Therefore, rulers would be wise to submit to the Lord and to his enthroned son. Therefore, rulers would be wise to submit to the Lord and to his enthroned son. Those first two words are really important. Now, therefore. That's showing that this stanza is an inference of the first three stanzas. Because stanzas one, two, and three are true, stanza four logically follows. And here's the the main idea. I haven't told you the main idea of the psalm yet. I've been waiting so you could see it inductively. Here it is. The main idea of Psalm 2 is this. Submit to the Lord and to his enthroned son. Submit to the Lord and to his enthroned son. That's the main idea of this stanza, and it's what I've titled the sermon as. So the sermon title is the same. Submit to the Lord and to his enthroned son. Verse 10 is a warning. It's saying to the rulers, don't be foolish. Don't be foolish. Don't rebel against the Lord's king. So a ruler during the days of King David would heed this warning by, say, regularly paying tribute to Israel, to King David, by not rebelling against King David. And then verse 11 warns, serve the Lord and rejoice. Don't rebel. Serve and rejoice. But do those activities with fear and with trembling because the Lord's king is not someone to mess with. He deserves your respect. Kiss the son. Our family was, was reading over this psalm a few weeks ago, and uh, when we got to that line, there were some high eyebrows among the ladies. Uh, what does that mean? Kiss the sun. This is not any kind of romantic kissing. Uh, this is idea of paying homage, paying respect to. And you see this in 1 Samuel 10 and 1 Kings 19, the, ty- the type of kissing this is. It's submission. It's reverential. It's laying down your arms of rebellion. So it's like saying, submit to the king. Obey the king. Follow the king. Lay down your arms of rebellion. Otherwise, he will be angry and you will perish in the way. It's in your best interest to kiss the sun. And the final line of Psalm 2 bookends Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 together. Psalms 1 and 2 go together as the introduction to all 150 psalms. The first line of Psalm 1 is, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the, of the wicked. This is a blessed man. The final line of, line of Psalm 2 is, Blessed are all those who take refuge in the Son. Blessed. Happy. We are 
wired, we're, we're, we're depraved, we're sinful to, with the result that we want to take refuge in anyone or anything else than the Son. And this psalm is reminding us you're blessed when you take refuge in the Son. That's where real happiness is, is in the Son. Nowhere else and no one else. So that's uh, stanza four, and that's what Psalm 2 means in its historical cultural context. Here's a summary. Vassal, Gentile, nations, futilely rebel against the Lord and his anointed king. The Lord taunts and terrifies those who rebel against him and the king he's installed. The Lord became the king's father at his coronation and will give the king victory over rebels. So rulers would be wise to submit to the Lord and to his enthroned son. That, I believe, is the historical cultural context of Psalm 2. Now, let's read it a second time, but this time, let's read it in a whole Bible context. Let's read it with Christian eyes. Psalm 2 is what we call a royal psalm, royal. Uh, that applies to not just King David, but to every Davidic king, every king in David's line. Who is the ultimate Davidic king? It's King Jesus. The king who ultimately fulfills Psalm 2 is the greatest Davidic king, Jesus the Messiah. Jesus is the son of David. That's the opening line in the New Testament, Matthew 1.1. He's the son of David. The Lord would give to Jesus the throne of his father David, Luke 1.32. Each Davidic king became God's son at his coronation, and Jesus, according to Hebrews 1.5, is the supreme son. He's going to conquer all his enemies under his feet, 1 Corinthians 15, Hebrews 2. So let's read Psalm 2, stanza 1, with Christian eyes. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So we already saw the main idea is that vassal na nations futilely rebel against the Lord and his anointed king. Here's the main idea when we read it with Christian eyes. Rebelling against the Lord and his anointed king, capital K, King Jesus, Jesus the Messiah, is futile. Now translating the Bible from Hebrew to English is not easy. Here's one of the, the decisions that interpreters have to make when they're translating Look at the end of verse 2. You see the word anointed? It's capital A in the ESV. If you're looking at another translation like the NIV, it's a lowercase a. What's going on here? It's, well, in a historical cultural context, the anointed refer to any Davidic king, but in the whole Bible context, it ultimately refers to King Jesus. So translations that have a capital A for anointed are interpreting this as in its whole Bible context, reading it with Christian eyes. So either, either way, that little a or big A can work, but that's, that's why there's a difference. And you see it also in verse 6 with the word king and verses 7 and 12 with the word son. Now I'm going to show you a slide here that has some funny-looking words on it. Don't freak out. I'll explain. So on the left, this is a Hebrew word. You pronounce Mashiach. On the right, it's a Greek word, Christos. So this Hebrew word, when you transliterate it, you get Messiah. Let me just pause there. When I say transliterate, um, let me use another example. 
a word you all know, hallelujah. What does that mean? Praise the Lord. That's, so that's actually one Hebrew word. That it means praise the Lord. But you all can say hallelujah. That's a transliteration. It's not a translation. The translation is praise the Lord. So the transliteration is just kind of taking the letters from one language to another, like a code, like how would we pronounce it? You all with me? Okay. So transliteration of Mashiach, that's where we get Messiah. The translation of Mashiach is anointed. That's at the end of verse 2, Psalm 2, 2, his anointed, his Mashiach. The Greek translation of Mashiach is Christos. Transliteration of that is Christ, and the translation is anointed or Messiah. Christos means the fulfiller of the Israelite expectations of a deliverer, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ. So when we say Jesus Christ, we, we don't mean Jesus Christ like you'd say Stephen Lee. No, it's Jesus Christ, like you'd say, uh, Stephen the pastor. This is Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the anointed one. That, that's what we mean by when we say Christ. That's where it's coming from. And the first Christians in Acts chapter 4 apply the first stanza of Psalm 2 to the death of Christ and to the persecution of early Christians. So the kings and the rulers that Psalm 2 is referring to, they apply that to Herod and Pontius Pilate, who were futilely rebelling against the Lord. So let me show this to you. I couldn't fit it all on the slide. Here's what comes before what you see on the slide. So uh, Luke says that when they, when Peter and John were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices to God and said, and here's what's on the slide. This is their prayer. Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, and then they quote in their prayer, which is another good reason to quote the Bible when you're praying, they quote Psalm 2, verses 1 and 2. Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Look how they apply it. For, truly, in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. Jesus is the anointed one. Who was gathered together against him? Both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So, what the early Christians are doing is quoting Psalm 2, applying it to Jesus, who ultimately fulfills it, to illustrate the point that it's futile, it is futile to rebel against the Lord and the Messiah. Now, let me just pause here to address a challenging aspect of how the New Testament sometimes uses the Old Testament. So this is a, a, a principle, an axiom about communication is that when you say something, when you, com- when you write something, when you communicate, you're communicating what you intend. You communicate your intention. So if you write a text message to, to a friend, that text message means what you intended to communicate. All right? So this is where it gets unusual, is that the Bible is a divine human book. God is the author, and humans are the author. 
fully. So the question then becomes, is it possible for God to intend more than the human author intends? You understand the question? So think about King David. He's writing Psalm 2. Does he necessarily understand all of the implications of what he's writing? Is it possible that God, who is working with David to write these words, God may be aware of more connections than David is? I think so. So here's, here's how I would say it. Uh, God may intend more, but never less than what the human authors intended to communicate. So here's how I would imagine this working. If King David, hundreds of years later, sees Acts 4, he's not going to respond by going, whoa, Luke, that is totally not what I was talking about. You ripped Psalm 2 out of context. That's not what I intended. No, what he would do is, I think, say, wow, I, I knew that I was writing about all the Davidic kings and that it would culminate in the Messiah, but I didn't know how this would all work and I didn't understand the full trajectory and look at how it all came together in God's plan. God arranged this. This is picture prophecy. God's amazing. Hallelujah. Transliterated. Uh, so I, I think he would say something like that. Uh, now that we have the whole Bible, I think we have to read any one part of it with Christian eyes that take into account the whole thing. So I have friends, I'm an academic, so I have some friends who are Old Testament scholars, and one of their big things is they imagine reading an Old Testament passage and bracketing out everything that came after it. They think like to get to the, the real pristine meaning of the passage is exactly what the human author intended at that moment without knowing anything that came later. And I think there's a place for that. Uh, I just tried to do it briefly as we walked through Psalm 2 the first time. But I don't think we can stop there today because today we're Christians. We have the whole Bible and we want to read any one part of it in light of the whole. I mentioned at the beginning reading Lord of the Rings. Uh, hopefully, as a Christian, you are repeatedly reading the Bible. I won't ask for a raise of hands, but how many of you have, have read the whole Bible at least once? Twice. No, don't raise your hand. Don't raise your hand. I don't want to embarrass anybody. Uh, um, I'm guessing many of you, you've done that repeatedly. And as you do that over and over and over and over, it should so affect you that when you read any one part, including an Old Testament Davidic psalm, you should read it in light of the whole story. I think we have to read that way now at this point in the history of salvation. To do, to do less would be to miss part of, the, of what God intended in that communication. And that's an intention that we can know now that we have the whole, whole Bible. So the main idea of this psalm, when we read it with Christian eyes, is that rebelling against the Lord and his anointed king, Jesus the Messiah, is futile. Now let's read Psalm 2 with Christian eyes. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So I already saw the main idea is that the Lord taunts and terrifies those who rebel against him and the king he has installed. With Christian eyes, we'd say the Lord taunts and terrifies those who rebel against him and the king, capital K, he has installed, namely 
Jesus, the Messiah. So the Lord says in verse 6, As for me, I have set, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. God himself installed Davidic kings to protect his people against enemies who, who would rebel. And Jesus is the ultimate Davidic king. Hebrews 12 connects coming to Mount Zion with coming to Jesus in faith. Listen to this. You, believers, have come to Mount Zion and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. That's Hebrews 12, 22, and 24. The first two stanzas of Psalm 2 are remarkably encouraging for us today, aren't they? We might feel discouraged since prominent influencers in our culture are rebelling against the Lord, rebelling against God's design for male and female, rebelling against God's design for sex between only a husband and wife, rebelling against God's design for a mother's womb to be the safest place possible for a defenseless developing baby, rebelling against God's design for human authority and marriage and the family and the church and society, rebelling against the inspiration and authority of the Bible, rebelling against Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. We could go on and on and on with specific ways that prominent people in our culture are rebelling against the Lord and against King Jesus. And when that happens, when we see that happening, what might be a temptation? To get discouraged. To think, oh, we're losing. Look at all this. It's such a mess. What's, what's happening? But cheer up. Look at verse 4. Remember, how does God himself respond to such rebels? You see it in verse 4. He laughs. He holds them in derision. He's not scared when human rulers or other influential people rebel against him. That does not scare God. So, should we be scared when all around us we see people rebelling against the Lord? I don't think so. We can trust our sovereign Lord. He is supremely sovereign and he has installed King Jesus and no one can have the last laugh at King Jesus. So right now it might seem like the final outcome is hanging in the balance, but it's not. We know how this story ends. God wins and he gets glory. So don't freak out every time you hear about specific ways that people are rebelling against King Jesus. Instead, take comfort that even though people are right now contesting that Jesus is king, in the end, King Jesus will conquer all rebels and be the uncontested king. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Anointed One, is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the main idea of, of, of stanza two is that the Lord taunts and terrifies those who rebel against him and the king he has installed, Jesus, the Messiah. Now let's read stanza three. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces 
like a potter's vessel. We already saw the main idea is that the Lord became the king's father at his coronation and will give the king victory over rebels. Here's the main idea when you read it with Christian eyes. Give me grace before you judge me because it's going to sound heretical. All right. The Lord became Jesus the Messiah's father at his resurrection and will give King Jesus victory over rebels. The Lord became Jesus the Messiah's father at his resurrection and will give King Jesus victory over rebels. You're already judging me. I told you not to do that yet. All right, let me just qualify right here. God the Father is eternally the Father. God the Son is eternally the Son. And in another sense, in the sense of the sonship language that Psalm 2 is using, we can speak of a time when the Lord became the Messiah's Father. Here's how one theologian puts it. His name is J.V. Fesco, teaches Sismatic Theology at Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi. He says, this language we're seeing, today I have begotten you, this is royal ascension language. It's what is said of a person who enters the royal palace as an ordinary man and leaves as an ascended and inaugurated king. We might say the same thing of the inauguration of our own president. Before the ceremony, he's a regular citizen, but after his inauguration on the Capitol steps, he's president of the United States. In this sense, the nation begets a president. This is how we must understand David's statement in Psalm 2-7. Paul identifies the resurrection of Jesus as his royal enthronement. Let me show that to you. So the New Testament cites Psalm 2-7 three times. The first time is Acts 13 32 and 33. We bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us and their children by raising Jesus. So just pause there. He's highlighting the resurrection of Jesus. Now look what he does to support that. As also it's written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So Jesus climactically fulfilled Psalm 2-7 when God raised Jesus from the dead. So the today I have begotten you, in its historical cultural context, that was the day that a, an Israelite became the Davidic king. Well, ultimately the today refers to the day that the ultimate Davidic king, Jesus the Messiah, became the king at his enthronement. And that's the day of the resurrection. That's what Romans 1.4 says about Jesus. He refers to him as the Son of God in power. That's what he became at his enthronement. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 1 at the end that God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that's named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. It's beautiful, beautiful. Let's look at, quickly at the other two times that the New Testament cites Psalm 2-7. The second is Hebrews 1-5. The argument at this point in Hebrews is that Jesus is better than angels. And as supporting evidence, he argues this way. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. 
It's quoting Psalm 2-7. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. We already saw that also, 2 Samuel 7-14. Jesus, the Messiah, is the son of David. He ultimately fulfills what God promised David in 2 Samuel 7. And in the third passage is in Hebrews 5. So if you back up at the end of Hebrews 4, the, uh, the argument is that Jesus is the great high priest. And he's better than every other high priest chosen from among men. And then we have our passage on the screen. No one takes this honor for himself, but only, that that is the honor of being a high priest, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So Jesus is the ultimate priest, the high priest, who is interceding for us now as the enthroned son. I want to keep going, but we, we need to start landing the plane. So I'm going to keep rolling. Uh, verses 8 and 9. Uh, verse 8 says, I will make the nations your heritage. That refers to the nations, that's the Gentiles. Uh, these are the people who are raging and plotting and vain against the Lord and his king. Do you remember what Paul writes in Romans 1? He writes that the ultimate Davidic king, Jesus the Messiah, our Lord, is the one through whom... He says, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. Beautiful, beautiful connection. Here's another one. Uh, 8B here says, I'll make the ends of the earth your possession. Does that phrase, the ends of the earth, ring a bell? The ends of the earth? Do we just have a series on a book like maybe Acts? Remember this? So when, when Jesus, he's risen from the dead. He says, all authority has been given to me. And then, before he ascends, what does he say in Acts 1.8? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and all Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Beautiful. Another connection. And then verse 9, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Jesus will break and smash the rebellious nations. So the main idea of stanza three, when we read it with Christian eyes, is that the Lord became Jesus, the Messiah's father, at his resurrection and will give King Jesus victory over rebels. Let's read stanza four. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So I already saw, you could summarize this by saying, therefore, rulers would be wise to submit to the Lord and to his enthroned son. With Christian eyes, we could say it this way. Therefore, you would be wise to submit to the Lord and to his enthroned son, capital S, King Jesus. Again, now, therefore, is indicating that this final stanza is an inference of the first three. The main idea is submit to the Lord and to his enthroned son, ultimately to King Jesus. Now, this psalm addresses kings and rulers of the earth, but I summarize it by saying you. I don't think any of you are kings in here, uh, in a, like of a, of a country. Uh, so how could I go from kings and rulers to you? Here's my logic. If pagan rulers should submit to the Lord and the Messiah, how much more should the rest of us, right? And the Psalms are Christian scriptures. They're for all of God's people. All of it applies to us. So I think it's not a stretch to say that you 
would be wise to submit to the Lord and to his enthroned son. Worship the Lord and his enthroned son. Verse 11 captures how we should respect and revere the Lord. Serve him. Rejoice. But don't do it flippantly. Don't do it lightheartedly. Do it with fear and with trembling. Kiss the son. Pay homage to King Jesus. Submit to King Jesus. Obey King Jesus. Remember, he said himself in John 5, 23, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father. Honor the Son. Lay down your arms of rebellion against King Jesus. Follow him gladly. If you don't, you will perish in the way. So if you're not following King Jesus as your Savior and as your Master, Kiss the Son. And for the rest of us, if you are following King Jesus as your Savior and your Master, you also should kiss the Son. Submit to King Jesus. Don't, don't be willing to follow King Jesus in every area but just a few. Follow him in every area, boldly, courageously. Don't hold anything back. And the last line of the psalm is so beautiful. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Take refuge in in King Jesus. Nothing else. No one else. Refuge from God's wrath. Refuge from God's enemies. King Jesus is our rock. He's our fortress. He's our deliverer. He's our shield, our dwelling place, our stronghold. And everyone who takes refuge in him is happy, is blessed, joyful, really happy. It's what we all want. This is how you get it. Take refuge in King Jesus. We most glorify King Jesus when King Jesus most satisfies us. So the main idea of Psalm four, Psalm, Psalm 2, stanza 4, is you would be wise to submit to the Lord and to his enthroned son, King Jesus. So we've just read it twice, read this thing twice, once with, with uh, the historical cultural context in view, and then again with the whole Bible context in view. I won't read it all again to you now, but just... The main idea is this applied to the Davidic kings and it ultimately is fulfilled in King Jesus. So let me just close with a few questions for you. Are you, are you plotting to rebel against the Lord and King Jesus? You might say, I don't think so. Well, are you bucking against specific commands from God? Are you reluctant to serve the Lord? Are you reluctant to submit to King Jesus? You might not think that you're plotting rebellion against God Almighty, but if you're bucking, say, against God's design for men and women, you are. You are plotting against the Lord. Perhaps you're wavering on God's commands regarding sexuality and the prevailing view in our culture that makes the Bible feel backward. It makes us, makes us feel like we're on the wrong side of history. Let this truth this truth from Psalm 2 land on you with fresh power and freedom. To be on the side of King Jesus is to be on the right side of history. It is. So obey him, trust him, follow him. Let this psalm free you to follow Jesus without shame and let it motivate you to pray for those who are living in rebellion against King Jesus. Maybe it's a family member, a friend, a neighbor, Let's be eager to show the beauty of Christ, of of knowing and following King Jesus. And remember, it's it's not worth fighting the Son. Your arms 
are too short to box with God Almighty. You will lose every time. You can't win. You, so you would be a fool to keep rebelling. And according to Psalm 2, you would be wise if you submit. And you'll not just be wise, you'll be blessed if you do. Let's pray. Our Father, we acknowledge that it is futile to rebel against you and against Jesus the Messiah. So would you please help us be wise by submitting to you and to your enthroned Son, King Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720-13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.